Hey everyone, before we begin the podcast, I wanted to let you know about another live play event the Roundtable is cooking up. Some Roundtable panelists and I are stress testing high level combat in the new edition of D&D, and this time we're throwing down with the Queen of Chromatics, Tiamat. That's right, the Tarask Takedown crew is reuniting to take on the evil goddess with all new adventurers in a battle DM by the best of the best, Mike Shea. We'll be live streaming our battle on Tuesday, December 2nd at 8.30pm Eastern, and then releasing YouTube videos and a podcast later. You can get all the information at the Tome Show. All right, let's start this podcast. Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intracasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about some Dungeon Master's Guide previews and a Mike Merle's Reddit AMA. First, let's meet our panel. With me today at the roundtable are Dave Gibson. Hello. Sam Dillon. Hello. Liz Tice. Hi there. And the one and only Jeff Greiner. There's actually 74.3 of us in the world. (laughs) Oh, really? There's actually several fractions of Jeff Greiners out there. Ah. They just got the, they just got the wrong middle name. It's no big deal. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> All right, panel. First, a get to know you question: Who is your favorite named D and D villain, such as Orcus or Strahd? Uh, Dave Gibson, let's start with you. Well, I got into D and D through Dragonlance, but the first campaign setting I bought was Ravenloft. So I'm going to split the difference and go with Lord Soth. Uh-huh. Nice. That was my backup, so nobody better steal my first one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, people are always so concerned. We're allowed to have repeat answers. <laughs> no, we're not. Almost be unique. The only one. <laughs> well, Jeff, so we can make sure no one steals yours. What who is your favorite name, D and D? Well, my number one choice, based purely on the humor factor, is Venger from the D and D cartoon. <laughs> Because <laughs> who doesn't want to wear a helmet with a horn on only one side that's way lopsided? Sam Dillon, who is your favorite named D&D villain? My favorite named D&D villain goes way back to the 1980 Red Box by Frank Mincer. It is Bargle the Infamous, the horrible, horrible magic user who killed poor Alina the Cleric. Oh, man. Oh. We're getting some deep cuts here today. Uh this is great, guys. Uh, Liz Tice, who is your favorite named D&D villain? So my favorite uh, named D&D villain is actually from a couple of books in the Forgotten Realms campaign setting by R.A. Salvatore. Uh, it's Jarl Axel. It just, it's a really epic name. You, and you pronounce it Jarl, huh? I do. Mm-hmm. I've always gone Jarl, but you know, that's me. I like the soft J. I've never yeah. heard that before either, but I think that's pretty awesome. And plus, it's a drow name, so who knows how it's who supposed knows, to be yeah. All right, guys. Well, why don't we get cracking, because we've got a lot of ground to cover. We are covering a bunch of Dungeon Master's Guide previews. Um, one of the first things that we got to see was this magic item table that they're putting out where it looks like they, you know, there are going to be a lot of different tables in the DMG that you can roll for random stuff on. And one of them is magic items uh, for your potions or for your players to find these, the tables that we're sort of seeing in preview are all things 
that uh, look like they have one use and then, you know, they're done. Scrolls, potions, that sort of thing. Arrows. I'm glad that the, the randomness is back. I sort of missed that, uh, that there weren't a lot of tables that I could roll on in 4th edition. So I'm glad to see that that's back. Dave Gibson, are you glad to see the return of magic item tables? What did you think? I love it. I love being able to just randomly roll treasure. And you never know when you're going to... Um party's going to stumble over something or open a chest you hadn't planned. You're just going to need a treasure off the top of your head and random items make that so much fun. I, I mean, I feel like because of the way they've done the math in the edition, they can, it's, it's okay to do a, a crazier, more random treasure uh, system, right? Because, you know, in third edition uh, and even more to it, and even more, I guess, in fourth edition, you kind of had to tailor, you need X number of magic items in order to keep up with the math. And if you don't have it, you fall behind. And so if you give them a magic item that's not useful to them, then then they fall, you know, then it doesn't work for the, for the math and the game starts to fall apart, right? Uh, when the math doesn't rely on the magic items, then you can say, hey, here's some random thing. It might be completely useless to you, but enjoy Noel Zur's Marvelous Pigments. yeah well and and right i think that that is pretty cool it was great always to get the wish lists from players you know to to help them uh make their characters into uber superheroes in fourth uh i certainly loved playing that and i certainly loved you know those epic fights and everything but i do feel like this feels a little more organic finding Mm -hmm. you know a piece of treasure rather than finding a piece of treasure that is exactly tailored for you uh, Sam, what did you think about this? Uh, well, you know, as you know, I'm I'm an old school. You know, I I started way back in 1980 something something, and uh, <laughs> I I love tables. Tables are great, and I don't I didn't often use them in fourth edition because, as you guys mentioned, you know the the uh, the onus is on the party to get you know to keep up with the Joneses and have exactly the right amount of magic items because otherwise you're going to be way underpowered because that's how the system was built. But, uh, you know, it didn't used to be like that back in first edition and basic and and in second. It wasn't really like that. When you found a magic item, it was like, whoa, what does this thing do? You know, um, but I do have one comment like on magic item table C, the folding boat, like you could get like a, a folding boat made by a first level magic user that just folds in half once and it's still huge and humongous. Or you could get the one made by the 12th level magic user that folds up like the little suitcase like uh that george jetson used to put his car in at the end can you imagine <laughs> it doesn't really say anything specific it just says folding boat that sounds great i mean it, that that's the thing is that uh, tables like this you know when you roll on a table like this you don't necessarily have to use exactly what it says but it might spark your imagination and mm. make something turn more interesting than you even thought it could in the first place liz what did you think about these random tables Well, just going off of the art, I feel like with all of the magic items that we've seen, all of the art for them, every time I see it, I go, oh, yeah, if I had imagined this particular item, this would this fits perfectly. And of course, I'm not that creative. So that's silly for me to even think that. But (laughs) it's it's just fantastic. Um, What what I was kind of surprised at, but absolutely loved was seeing that the handy haversack, right, was just 96. (laughs) And in my games, it seems like everyone has one. (laughs) So for me, it just, it really helps me understand, okay, this is what this edition is going to be like. And you know what? I kind of like that because it is, all of these items are 
and you know they're powerful and they they have great story behind them so i love that it's going to be more random like you all are saying it i think it makes makes the the magic of the world maybe a little bit more more real just because it is a little bit more scarce yeah yeah and and i definitely think because of the bounded accuracy system that we always talk about so much you know that that magic items are going to be more precious than they have been in some previous editions uh which is fun it makes getting one more special it makes you know giving them out more special for the for the dm um and it feels like i can personalize stuff rather than be like yeah here's a plus one fire sword you know, I got a hundred more of these things to give out before we're done. So Jeff, what did you think of these random tables, man? It's cool to see. Uh, I kind of want to see what A and B look like, right? Because they seem to be more exciting the earlier they are in the alphabet. So, you know, because as you mentioned, like all of them on table E are uh, expendable, you know, um, one-time uses. Almost all of them on D, except for a handful of them. And then, you know, all but the last 10 or so on, on C are one-time use items. Um, so I think as you get into A and B, you see some of the more, more powerful and interesting items. But, of course, if they, if they showed us that, that'd be telling, wouldn't it? Right, right, so. yeah. They don't want to give away their whole hand, obviously. They want us to go out and buy the book. We have some hints in the player's handbook that there were going to be some villainous mm. options. You know, a uh, a death domain cleric and an oathbreaker paladin, uh, and Wizards has released previews of those as well uh, in the DMG. Uh, and and this was kind of cool to see. Like, oh wow, we have these villainous options now that look like they could be really cool if they're applied to NPCs or you know the very rare DM who trusts his player enough to let them play evil characters. Uh, what did you think, Sam? Uh, <laughs> I think the best part of those two page that two page preview is the d- villain's weakness table. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> yep. that is so. Cool. I think it's I think it's really great because once again, it's one of those things that sparks inspiration. And not that the actual descriptions of like the death domain cleric or the oathbreaker aren't enough to spark it, uh, imagination, but the thing is that I would have to like roll one of those up and and play around with it to really really get a feel for it whereas that that villain's weakness table automatically like makes me think of several different things that could be going on regardless of the nature of the villain so yeah so they're they're fine but you know eh, i'm wa- i'm still waiting for the whole book you know liz what did you think of these villainous option previews well uh, i actually had a very similar note to uh what sam said about the the villain weakness table i just i love that it sort of mirrors the uh, character flaw tables uh, for the the player characters. So I, I th- thought that was a nice touch. And also I loved um, the Oathbreaker atonement section. Uh, I love that if a player uh, ends up being an Oathbreaker, uh, that basically to atone, it's it's role-playing, right? So it's they have to demonstrate the alignment. And I, I, I think it puts the pressure on the character to, to role-play that out how exactly do they atone for breaking their oath and that's just exciting to me from a role-playing perspective so it's interesting because when we reviewed the player's handbook um one of the things i i kind of thought and i I think i mentioned was that there were there were things missing right like the obvious lack of a death domain there we had a life domain there should be a death domain there are death gods and then we found out that was going to be in the dmg and i think it's interesting to look at this as 
they see while, while they are giving us options, um, and these could very easily be player options as as much as as villain options. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 in fact, especially like the Oathbreaker Paladin, that's basically just the Fallen Paladin. You know, if you that, so that's easy to fit into a campaign with a good character. Even um, I feel like so. I, it's interesting to, also though that they are trying to guide us towards a certain style of play. They're definitely encouraging the the neutral or good aligned party mm-hmm. um, b- by putting this stuff in the DMG because it's generally more associated with evil. Yeah. So so I'm just it's just just interesting to me that um, the way they're trying to do that. Whereas in the past, uh, like third edition, right, they would have just had everything in the player's handbook and said, "Here, do what you want. If you want to make, play evil, play evil. If you want to play good, play good." I don't know if that's good or bad. I just I just found it interesting. Also, the artwork has about the most gruesome looking lich I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a very gross lich. And I think you know, I think probably one of the things that this is in the DMG is because maybe they're trying to give some of that agency. Back to the DM. So, uh, you know, if you want to have an evil game, the DM has the power and has to allow that rather than a player showing up at your table and saying, here, I made a death domain cleric mm, and I've true. got 20 zombies following me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think they're trying to walk a fine line too, right? I mean, if, I feel like one of the, the um, legitimate critiques about fourth edition was it encouraged a very specific style of play. Mm-hmm. Right, fourth edition wanted you to play D and D a certain way, and and if you didn't want to play that way, then fourth edition really wasn't the edition for you. Um, whereas this is them sort of encouraging a certain style of play, but giving you the options in case you wanted to do something else. What we're seeing here, I think, is that the DMG is going to be all about hackability and you know cracking open the uh, the controls of this thing and playing them, which is sort of what we've been promised from the beginning. So it seems like they're hopefully going to deliver on that. Dave Gibson, villainous class options. What do you think? I think it's interesting that the the death domain made it into the DMG, whereas the necromancer, the wizard option, was just straight in the player's mm. handbook. Whereas necromancers are pretty evil. That's true. And <laughs> I, I can think of at least a couple uh, cl- uh, clerics of death or gods of death that are kind of neutralish. There was a mm-hmm. Kelimbor in the Forgotten Realms. I think mm. Jeff can back me up if he's mm-hmm. still around. Absolutely. And uh, the Raven Queen was kind of neutralish. Mm-hmm. And so you could make a case for like death being a part of the natural order and kind of a neutral. So it's no, but I like the 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 oathbreaker slash anti paladin, which is but, the, but then much- again the the cleric was already getting more pages than any, than pretty much anybody else in the player's handbook. So yeah, yeah there's that as well. So yeah. it's- <laughs> you and- know, when you look at it that way, you you could actually say that the a druid you could have like a death druid or a, a dark druid that would, yeah. Where's the blighter? You know, we need the blighter with yeah. a druid. Well, who, there might be more pages to this villainous class section, guys. We don't That's know. That's true. You know? We also have a preview from the Dungeon Master's Guide about building memorable NPCs. And this seems to have more of those fun tables to find traits and that sort of thing. And as Liz pointed out, you know, that villain flaw table was akin to the background flaw table that you find in the player's handbook. This seems to have a lot of things, uh, you know, giving your NPCs ideals and giving them bonds and secrets that are also akin to that background section. Liz, what did you think of this uh, building NPCs section? I I love it. And I think that's partly because uh, I'm, I've recently been getting into uh, being behind the dungeon master screen. So uh, I am still learning about how to put together ideal NPCs. And looking at this, I'm just thinking to myself, oh my God, thank you. Uh, because it... <laughs> 
it sort of shortcuts, especially if you have to come up with an NPC on the fly, right? It's just a matter of rolling and suddenly you have someone that I would feel more comfortable with putting together on um, at the table rather than making up an excuse to, to take a break and trying to come up with someone on my own. So I think it's, it's going to be great, especially for, for new GMs. Yeah, and I always try to give my NPCs some sort of really memorable physical thing mm-hmm. or, you know, some sort of memorable personality trait so that when the players meet him again in 12 sessions, they're like, all right, the eye patch guy. Uh, and, and it's nice to have this because on the fly, you know, eventually you end up with a bunch of guys with eye patches and then nobody can talk <laughs> Right. Well, in the, the mannerisms uh, table specifically sort of plays to what you're just talking about. Like those are all things that the, the DM can do at the table. Uh, and it's something that people will remember if you're sitting there you know, biting your table as you talk as the NPC suddenly, or did I say biting your table? Yes. Um, (laughs) Biting the fingernails. Um, I'm not sure I want to play in one of your games. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I mean, if you're biting your fingernails as you, as you talk as the NPC, they're going to, I mean, people are visual, right? So they're going to remember that and, and associate that mannerism with the NPC. It's, it's a great idea and I love it. Jeff Greiner, what did you think about this NPC uh, section of the DMG? I want to start with saying that I think it's fantastic for all the reasons that Liz mentioned and then get negative. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I I really like about 80% of it, a whole bunch. And and the only reason I don't like some of it is that I I, I wanted, I guess I wanted more. Like the bonds list is really short and I feel like they could have done a lot more with it. Uh, And the flaws and secrets list, uh, I found almost a little uninspired. Um, I kind of want a D20 of flaws and a D20 of secrets because I feel like they are different things and should be listed differently and be more, some of them be more, a little more interesting, you know? I did like that they are sort of general, they're big broad headings there and then they leave it up to you as the DM to get a little more specific about how that flaw actually plays out or how (laughs) that bond actually plays out. But you're right, it would have been nice to see more and... The one thing that I found strange was that, you know, under NPC talents, there's like a 5% chance. Does this mean that 5% of the world knows Thieves Can't? (laughs) Speaking in Thieves Can't in a public place about how you're going to steal something is probably not the best idea. (laughs) No, not 5% of the world. Just 5% of the people that the players will ever ever talk to. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think um, what they're doing is walking a very fine line between giving you enough to feel just satisfied and leaving it open enough to be able to create, you know, campaign guides for their, for their storylines and, you know, players guides for their storylines and GM guides that include more specific, more storyline targeted flaws and bonds and that sort of thing. Well, we um, will see, but it's I'm, not a I'm Tyranny hoping, of Dragons. Yeah, no, no, I know, but I'm I'm hoping that they, and I think Tyranny of Dragons may be somewhat of an outlier in terms of- And it's of, a first run. You know, and all that, yeah. It's a first run, yeah, and they were still solidifying the rules and blah, blah, blah. We could say a bazillion things about that, but I think they're trying to leave it open for that. So I, I kind of agree with you a little bit, but I think it was done on purpose. I don't think it was an oversight. I think it was a purposeful thing. Hmm. I just assumed it was for page count, but- well, and it would have taken a whole other page to do what I'm saying. So, yeah, but I think it would have been worth it if that's what they had wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. I think it's a big enough piece of really running a good NPC at the table. 
And, you know, one of the things too, you know, if one of the more useful things on here is the heading called useful knowledge, and then it doesn't even have a table. It just says, oh, this is a sentence describing a bit of knowledge that NPC possesses that might be of use to one of the player characters. It could right. be something as as mundane as the best in in town or as important as a clue needed to solve a murder. So, And then they didn't give any other examples than that. So you know, I think the useful knowledge, they could have a table for that mm-hmm. for you know, every campaign that they put out. So, you well, know, right. and, and that one ha- almost has to be, right? Because that's very right, right. campaign sure. specific. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, one thing that I actually think is really great about these is because they relate so directly to the player backgrounds – that when I have players who want to write their own, but aren't really like bond, like what should a bond be? You can give them these broader headings or you can give them these broader ideals and say, these are some of the ideals that might come that you might use for a lawful good character, you know, and then they can write something based on that uh, rather than have to pick something very specific from one of those things. I think it's like, it's good training wheels for players who want to create their own, but aren't sure how to do it. Dave Gibson, what are you thinking about these NPC tables? I'm wondering if the DM can get inspiration. It really nails an NPC out of the park. And the players just like throw them an inspiration to use for you know, <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like a great, a great house rule for your table. Like Jeff, I, I look at the tables and just like, I just want more. It needs mm-hmm. to be more, which as complaints go, is pretty good. Mm-hmm. But there's also the one thing I find lacking, which is hopefully is on page 89 right before this, is uh, NPC appearances. Because you've got like their personalities and manners mm-hmm. and interaction. We don't have like interesting physical traits like the guy with the eye patch or the guy with the peg leg or the limp. Uh, Sam, what did you think about these pages? Um, well... You know, once again, throw me some random tables and I'm extremely happy. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of agree with just about everything that's been said. I, I think that um, I think it's a great start. And I think that for uh, for very experienced DMs, it's a great reminder of, you know, remember, make your NPCs memorable. And, you know, sometimes, though, you know, for a new for maybe a new DM, they might try to put every single one of these tables to use on the same NPC and it might get a little overwhelming. Um, so I hope that they give some really good advice in here about how to make sure you don't try to overdo it. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, I th- I don't think it would be on one of these two pages. It would e- either be right before or right after maybe. So we'll see. You know, they, they're touting the DMG as the sort of, uh, the, the sort of design kit mm-hmm. for, the, for the DM. And I just hope that that design kit isn't just a toolbox, but also a toolbox with a little instruction manual. Let's move on and talk about uh, some fun tools that are in this toolbox and we'll talk about the wondrous items preview it looks like we got the first two pages here of wondrous items uh you know got some alchemy jugs full of mayonnaise uh the good old <laughs> amulet of health uh uh the apparatus of qualish jeff griner were you excited to see these wondrous items and do you want to see more no, it looks cool. I, the The artwork on the animated shield is weird to me. I thought it was some sort of weird water shield thing until I, you know, realized what it was from the the label. The apparatus of Kowalsh is always really interesting and quirky and weird, and yet I have and and I've n- been interested in it and always enjoyed reading the entries since like second edition, but have never used it. You know, <laughs> it's more interesting reading than it is uh, RPG material. You know, so. Um, you know, Amulet of the Plains have been a, a stable of many of my parties since uh, second edition. So, I mean, this is all stuff I would have expected and I'm glad to see. 
what did you think of the mayonnaise in the alchemy jug? Um, I, I guess I did. I hadn't looked that closely at the alchemy jug and realized that that one of the options was mayonnaise, and um, that's that's weird. That's, that's, <laughs> that's Not just mayo, but two gallons of mayo. Yeah, yeah. two gallons of yeah. I don't. Yeah, that, that's. Um, I'm going to go back to that's weird. It is definitely weird. Uh, Dave Gibson, what did you think about these pages? It's. Uh, I can see it being very annoying. Because um, it's all alphabetical. So if you're looking for, gee, was that an amulet or a necklace? What section of the book am I looking for for that that thing of health? But other than that, it's there's um, it looks neat. You know, the alchemy jug is great. I love the magic items that just don't give a a combat bonus or a straight numerical bonus. I love the the idea of here's a jug that you can get oil out of or vinegar. <laughs> it was yeah, I love that in um, older editions. Any. I even hunted through the Adventurer's Fault during 4th edition to find those kind of weird items that just had uh, no combat use, but just said were fun things to give to my it, players. Sam Dillon, thoughts yes, on these pages, sir? Uh, I mean, I like them. Like I said, my my favorite item on here is the Amulet of the Plains because it 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 goes right back to my 1st edition days. You know, that, that item is originally appeared on page 137 of the 1st edition AD&D DMG. And, um, and it was, it had a much more, uh, you had to roll on a table to figure out where you went because until you attuned to it, although they didn't use that word back then, it would just put you out at a random place, which I find amazing. And I think they, they did a, a sort of a pretty good job of trying to update that into the modern RPG landscape and under the fifth edition framework. And it, it looks like it's going to be just as fun as it always was. And I, d- I agree with Jeff, the, the qualish, um, Thing just is always it never quite makes it into my game uh but it's always one of those things where you read it and think man if i ever had a reason to put that in my players would just be <laughs> you know wondering what the hell i was on when i <laughs> decided to put that in there um but yeah i mean it's it's interesting to see i you know like i said earlier i'm really waiting for the whole book to come out because i think it's great to see these excerpts but you know, I really want to see it all in context and I want to see what they do around the examples. You know, what what kind of advice are they giving? What are they, what kind of things get more story? What kind of things get less story? What kind of things get a little hint of maybe you should think about this before you put this in your game or, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. What items are game breaking uh, and mm-hmm. how to create your own is certainly something right. exactly. be good to see. Uh, Liz Tice, what did you think of these pages? You know what? I just I kind of have to agree with what was just said. I I liked reading through it. Uh, I, it was fun reading through it, but I just it made me want to read more. Um, so I'm I'm just really looking forward to, gosh, two weeks from now when I'm able to pick <laughs> up the book in my uh, friendly local game store. Yeah, yeah. Black Friday, everybody, mark it on your calendar. So I I know I'll be there, uh, mm-hmm. in line <laughs> waiting for them to open up. Dave. Gibson. Wizards gave us this section about creating races and sub-races. What did you think of this? It looks like from the excerpt, right, we don't really have a lot of the advice about actually creating them, uh, but they do give us the sub-race of Eladrin and they give us the flavor text for the Asimar. Were you excited to see that uh, these two races are included in the DMG? It's. I thought it was brilliant. It was a, a great addition. I'm not a a huge Eladrin fan, but I like them well enough. 
And I like, I like that they found a way to include them in the core rule books without actually making them a um, you know, mandatory option or even an uncommon race in the, the, the player's handbook. It was just a great idea. Yeah, and what's interesting to me is that on one page, they're sort of appealing to players old and new, right? Here's this race that we saw in 4th edition, and here's this other race that's been around since 2nd and went away in 4th, and people wondered, you know, is the Deva this new Asmar? What's going on? Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the same time, they're supporting two older but often facing off editions, which I thought was really cool. Uh, Sam Dillon, what do you think? Well, so once again, here's another example of, well, I want to see what advice they give on creating your own more so than seeing an actual example of one that was created. Agreed. So, I mean, I, you know, it's all great. I, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of the Eldrin. I, I, I like the high elf versus wood elf more, but you know, whatever, that's a personal preference thing. And to split them into two races is fine or in, into a new sub race is fine. Uh, it's interesting how they did it. I, I like I like, for example, in the ASMR, they they actually talk about, you know, the Tiefling's Infernal Legacy trait that they have. It's a good model for for creating a similar trait, but for the ASMR, for the sort of ancestral or angelic celestial, you know, idea rather than the sort of uh, fiendish demonic idea. So, you know, I could see their train of thought. So I like the writing, but I want to see more. I just want to see more. That's never a bad thing when that's your, mm -hmm. your right. Complaint. Well, that means it's doing its job, right? The preview is doing its job because it makes me, because I don't read anything that I dislike, you know, I, I, I read things and I think, oh, that's interesting. I want to know what's in the two pages in front of this section more so than more of this same kind of preview. I, I just want to see the whole thing. So that means it's doing its job. It's a good thing. Liz, what did you think? I So I loved reading through the example race and the example sub race. Um, I was a little concerned when I just saw that sort of one short paragraph of creating a new race and I was thinking oh gosh I hope they expound on that in the the pages before or the page after um I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt just because I've enjoyed what they put out so far so um but I'll de definitely be disappointed if there's not additional information on how to actually create the race yeah, and I think they do a pretty mm -hmm. good job specifically by showing you what they did with the Asmar. But it's it would be nice to say like, okay, well, this is great. If I want to make a ying to a yang of a race, uh, I'm not sure if I said that correctly. But if you want to create <laughs> what is essentially an opposite race of one, you have good advice for that. But what if you want to create a whole new race? You know, right. um, that that's, comes from your brain. Uh, how do you do that? So I, I hope there is definitely some uh, information there. Jeff Greiner, bring us home, man. What did you think of this? Yeah, I mean, I guess in a similar vein, like the advice that we get from this page, which is fairly sparse because we mostly just get examples, uh, seems to boil down to, well, it's really more art than science. So look at what's there and good luck. <laughs> you know, you know. So I'm, I so like that everybody else. I'm hoping that we get some more sort of mechanical. These are the kind of things to consider. Something a little more concrete. Um, you know, uh, I'm with Sam on the the Aladrin thing. It's interesting that you know the the article leading into the image. Um, you know where they talk about how to make a new race, and there's that little blurb and some advice starts with, you know, where does this fit into the story and how is it significantly different than what's already there? And then the first thing they show us is the Eladrin, which is right. just the high elf, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they pitched it, the Eladrin to us in fourth edition as, well, it's just the new version of the high elf. 
Okay, well then if it, if the story is it's just the high elf but a little different, then we didn't really need it to begin with other than, you know, we want to help out the the fourth edition players make that conversion over. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I'm excited to see what's around this. Uh, but, and what's here is um, fine. If nothing else, um, hey, we get two new races. You know, because they basically just gave us the Eladrin and the ASMR without having to put it in the player's handbook. Let's move on, guys, and let's talk a little bit about Mike Merles, who was one of the lead designers on 5th edition uh, and the head of R&D at D&D. So he did an AMA on Reddit and answered a whole bunch of stuff. Um, You know, we got to see answers about things like the OGL and what was being left out of the DMG that would be added at a later date and that sort of thing. Uh, We could spend uh, probably about 10 podcasts uh, going through this and talking about all of his different replies and everything. So what I would like to hear from you is what did you like? Like, what were you really most interested in and what made you really happy? And was there anything in there that you were kind of disappointed to read or enraged by? Uh, Let us know. Uh, And let's start with the most enraged person I know, Sam Dillon. (laughs) I was waiting to see who it was going to (laughs) be. I'm so enraged. I'm as big as a Tarasque right now. (laughs) Breathing fire. Um... (laughs) I'm not actually enraged. Not I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm a happy. I'm a happy guy. I. Uh, I. I didn't. I knew we would. We could. I could start a conversation and we could talk for like five hours about mm-hmm. this. So I just wanted to um, mention one of the interesting. One of the interesting posts that he made. It happened kind of early on in the in the AMA, and someone asked him what the um, which parts of each prior edition had the most influence on the development of of fifth edition. And he he lists off a few things, and you know he says that um, third edition's core mechanics and the concept of unifying things across the board was something they wanted to bring over into the new edition. Fourth edition's approach to to having a core math that has a strong foundation uh, and and that gave every class something to do that was at least perceived as unique. Um, and he actually mentions, well, this may sound weird to some people because they thought the AEDU system made you know, made fourth edition not unique, you know, made the characters not new, unique, but you know, that's a point of view thing. Uh, he talks about the, the first edition's emphasis on the DM as, as a referee and an arbiter rather than, uh, somebody who's just running combats and, and, you know, that the arbiter and the referee can decide and make rulings rather than, you know, look at iron fisted rules. Um, and then second edition's emphasis on role playing and storytelling and uh, presenting options as variants for the DM to use rather than the player to use. And I think that's something that we, you know, that ties in well with our conversation tonight, which is a lot of what's in the DMG is literally options for your campaign. And while it, there are things that may apply to a PC, it's the DM's decision whether to have that in their game or not, ultimately. Um, and that's an idea that he's he says he's pulling from second edition. So I just thought it was an interesting sort of commentary on the fifth edition development. And, you know, he says, you know, new character options are going to be driven by story and setting. And, you know, homebrewing is a key part of being a DM. And that comes from all editions, but it's especially important in this one. And, you know, just things like that. And so I think... Um, I think it it was a it was a pretty informative and interesting AMA. You know, I, I'm always kind of skeptical about these sorts of things because, you know, it, it's 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 a marketing event to some extent, no matter what. 
and I, I guess, you know, I mean, I don't want to make it seem like he's, you know, he's not, um, he's out stumping, but he's trying to be honest within the bounds of his job and what he can actually say. Uh, of course, he's he works for the company. He's going to put a good spin on it. He's in love with the game, and he wants all the players to be in love with it. And I think that's admirable because that's what he should be doing in his job. Um, but I, I think that to, to a large extent, lots of questions just can't be answered. You know, <laughs> so uh, I found this question particularly interesting just because he points to he, he pulls something from every single edition. He didn't leave a single edition out. And it was something that was substantial that it informed the, the new edition. And so I think it was a good it was a good thing, even if even if some of it is a, is a little uh, sketchy or some people can't see the direct line from that edition to the next or if some, certain things come from min, more than one different edition. You know, it's still a nice thing to say to say, look, each edition did really inform their develop the development of this edition. Yeah, that wise words from you, Sam. So I'm waiting for you to do an AMA uh, <laughs> so we can have your feedback. Uh, Liz, what did you think of this AMA? What did you like? What made you happy? And uh, what made you feel sad inside? <laughs> so I, I really liked the comment uh, that Sam just pointed out. That was, I, I saw it and went, yeah, good for him. I love, I love his response. Um, but I think another thing that I really liked was his response to someone asking about, you know, what do my players spend their money on? Because uh, only common ma magic items are sold. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how um, the, the random tables and sort of fitting those cool magic items into the story. And so I, I really liked his, uh, his example of, you know, getting wish lists and then trying to incorporate those, those items into, into the story, into what they find in dungeons or, you know, if they really, really want this legendary item, having someone sell them a treasure map to one I, I liked that answer. It got my brain thinking on some some things I could fit into my game. Um, didn't like. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the uh, magazines and uh, seeing mm, that yeah. if they did something and it was an if if they did something it would be digital. I'm I love having a a physical magazine in my hand. My husband makes fun of me all the time that I still get magazines sent to my house, but I love it. And I, it would make me sad that there wouldn't be any physical copies though. I guess having anything would make me happy even a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The if is what makes me the most sad. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's true. And there are a lot of people out there who still prefer print. Um, and it's funny that, <laughs> All we have right now is print for the books, uh, so it's a <laughs> weird dynamic. Uh, Jeff Greiner, what did you like about this AMA, and what made you feel sad? I, I've been around the block with Watsy and with Mike Merle specifically a lot, so uh, I, as I looked through this, there wasn't anything that was particularly surprising to me. Like I, I feel like I could have probably answered for Mike Merle's about 80% of the time and nobody would have known the difference because I kind of <laughs> knew what he was going to say, right? Right, right. I, I, I knew what he was going to say on the OGL before he, before anybody asked. I knew what he was going to say on, on PDS before anybody asked. You know, uh, I knew what he was going to say about the, the Dungeonscape thing uh, before, you know, before that came up. Uh, so what I found interesting was just sort of getting some, some early insights as to sort of what they're where they're thinking about going in the future. Right. Uh, at this point, they've got the core books done and that's all finished and they, and, and they've 
they've started plotting several storylines ahead because that's how they're releasing everything is based on storylines, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like if you if you put some pieces together in a few different places, you can start to sketch out the beginnings of an outline of where some of these storylines might be going and what they might be about and what settings they might give us. So I think settings was the thing I found particularly interesting here. Um, I think based on what he said, we we could definitely see either Planescape or Eberron as the next settings. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I was, I was pleased to see Planescape on that list, but at the same time he talked about it as very useful mechanically. Right. Um, because Planescape, if you introduce Planescape as you know the second setting, then Planescape can become the gateway to travel from one setting to the next as you introduce more settings and continue to, to build on these stories. Now, he also, the, the, the third setting that he mentioned, somebody asked about Spelljammer. Um, and he mentioned he liked Spelljammer. Um, it was on the list, but they're not exactly sure where on the list it's going to fit in. Spelljammer fills a similar role as Planescape, but is less popular i guess is in a, a good better a good way to say that uh, in that it can mean traveling from world to world and and so it can serve a similar role but it doesn't seem to be a priority like everybody likes spelljammer in theory you know it's got this quirky sort of nostalgia to it um but i it's it hasn't been a priority for watsi since it came out or by then it was tsr right i mean it just has not been a big deal and there has to be a reason for that so i'm going to predict that that um other than possibly uh, sh- peeking into other products, there might be like a little cameo of, of, of a Spelljammer here or a GIF there or whatever. Um, I, I'm going to predict right now that we will see Spelljammer as a supported setting sometime between five years from now and never. <laughs> so that's my prediction. <laughs> you know, in, in, the, in the AMA, Mike Merles uh, said that Warforged are not in the DMG, uh-huh. <clears throat> that they were cut for space reasons. But he did uh, say that they were made. They, they have they, they are they are they are they are making that material available somehow, probably by PDF. So, do you think that makes Eberron a more likely setting to come out or a less likely setting? To I come think out? there has been a lot of push for Eberron. I think the fact that they've already got the Warforge done. Uh, Keith Baker has been doing this whole big online push, trying to pimp Eberron and just really get Watsi uh, noticing it and excited about how many fans there are that want to see Eberron. I think there has been a, a pretty strong. Um, I don't want to say grassroots, but it's almost that level, right? Uh, a movement of trying to say, "Hey, we want Eberron," right? Um, mm-hmm. And 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 I think it's definitely high on the list. I don't know whether Planescape or Eberron will come first, only because Planescape would be a useful mechanism to get to Eberron. But other than that, you know, probably unnecessary mechanical sort of story. I think Eberron probably has more juice to be the next setting after Forgotten Realms. My, 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 if I were setting things up, I might try to set up a formula because they talked about doing like two storylines a year. Um, mm-hmm. my, my guess would be the first couple storylines are the Forgotten Realms and then they sort of do a, a realm storyline every year and another setting storyline every year to sort of build the, the stable. Well, let me play devil's advocate then and say that also cut from the book along with the Warforged were the Kender. So do we think a Dragonlance setting is also in the future? I'm not, I'm not going to say no. Wizards hasn't seemed to be interested in supporting Dragonlance in for a really long time. Like they like the idea of Dragonlance, but they haven't produced a, a Dragonlance product since before third. But they but they they let Margaret Weiss Productions produce a third edition Dragonlance. Yeah. Guide. No, they're absolutely willing to let other people so, do it, but they don't seem right. to have an interest in doing it themselves. Right. 
So, so I heard talk of of Margaret Weiss being in contact with Watsi as well, just uh-huh. like Keith Baker is in contact with Watsi. So I have this image of all of these, you know, famous uh, game game campaign world developers like sitting in a room, like like the stock market, right? They're all waving around and trying to bid on, you know, who gets to make the next uh, published campaign world. It it all comes down to we have no freaking clue, you know. There's just no way for us to know. But it's so fun to speculate. Dave Gibson, <laughs> what did you like about this AMA, and uh, what made your heart heavy? I have so many thoughts, but I'm going to start by completely disagreeing with Jeff a couple seconds ago. Going back to that. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> That's a good way to start. <laughs> yes, I don't think we're going to see a lot of classic settings. I think I'm going to uh, see a bunch of stuff they haven't touched in a while, for the very good reason that they probably need to maintain those trademarks. So it might be a little bit more impetus to get the the Dragonlance or the Mistara or the Birthright um, out the door and something just so they can say that we retain the the trademarks and the IP a bit more. Whereas Eberron and Darkson have seen a little bit more love more recently, so it's they don't need to be brought back into the spotlight as quickly. I, I, I don't think I don't think that that legal concern will be their primary issue. I mean, if they need to throw out a PDF that supports it just to to do that, then I, then that's a thing. But doing a whole push storyline push for it, I think, is a whole other issue. Yeah, which is yeah, the PDF thing is probably what's going to happen for some stuff like Eberron. Because for Eberron, you don't need another campaign setting for that. You can go mm-hmm. out to D and D Classics or Noble Knight and buy the Eberron campaign setting, and nothing in that book will have changed. And all you need is the stats for say the Warforged and maybe a couple of the races and yeah, they can not, provide that on the website and, and not much, can, not can much has changed that since ab- third yeah you know? i, I could yeah. say that about any setting so that that doesn't really i mean yeah i, I could even say that about forgotten realms yeah i can well the forgotten realms has been spell plagued and well, nuked several times over <laughs> yeah that, but i'm just i'm just saying though but yeah. but you could go pick up any setting uh, set from in any of the editions in the time period that you'd like to play in and use that material i mean you know Right, and I think because great my- Greyhawk is on dndclasses.com. There's a bunch of Mistara gazetteers on dndclasses.com. I mean, you know, I'm and just I mean, also uh, playing devil's advocate, right? Let me yeah, just nope. take the time to say that if you are going to buy one of these <laughs> editions on dndclassics.com, you should go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links that you'll find in the show notes for this or any other episode. <laughs> I was just going to say that I hope Wizards of the Coast realizes what Sam and I just said, and they kind of produce. Uh, documents that'll update really quick short little documents that just have like the races and maybe like a class option just something so you can convert a campaign setting that you really love without needing the big giant book and they have said in the ama that uh, mike merle said that conversion guides are coming for previous editions so you can convert your your older edition class over i'd also well there's one of mike's uh, responses that really caught my eye in addition to what i've said earlier is um he Someone was talking about how he wanted uh, consistency in how the DMs respond to the characters, how the actions of the characters. And Merle's replied with, if you need every DM to run the game exactly the same, 5e is probably the wrong game for you. 5e is focused on giving DMs the tools and flexibility to run the games they want. Mm. And I love that answer. I thought that was it's great that we're getting back to that, that the, the little bit more, more DMV yet, but also DMs making the game their own rather than every DM has to run the game exactly the same. Something else from the AMA, Mike Merles, when talking about how they might do stuff on the website, uh, suggested a uniquely approachable new column with a throwback name, with uniquely approachable being capitalized, suggesting we may see an unearthed like, Hannah-type column coming back. Uh. Yeah, that might be a nice place to put, say, more NPC flaws and secrets, tables of useful knowledge. And final comment, they talk about, well, I've talked about the conversion guides in the 
conversion guides, and the Warforge and Kender coming up in the DMG, and also how the battle system rules are not in the DMG and going to be eventually out in playtesting. And they keep saying that, you know, things are coming. And I kind of wish we'd see some of it. I mean, the, <laughs> the Dungeon Master Guide has been kind of done on their side for a couple of weeks now, a better part of a month. I think they could have gotten, like, say, Battle System on the website by now. It'd be nice for them to <laughs> see, to see some of the stuff. I think I think they don't have the Battle System stuff up because, like you said, they, they want to go back and redo it. Well, the sooner they, they get they, out there, the sooner we can play test the crap out of it and fix it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, I think that's going to do it for this episode of The Roundtable. Dave Gibson, where can people find you? They can find me at uh, www.5mwd, that's 5-Minute Workday, my webcomic, where you can find out my thoughts on what players can spend all their gold on. You can also find links to the two books I published on there and a bunch of other stuff. And I'm also on Twitter at dndjester. Sam Dillon, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, or they can go to RPGmusings.com, or they can just listen to any of the various and sundry tome show episodes that we have, where I'm usually on about one out of every five or so. Uh, Liz Tice, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I am there under my name, Liz Tice. Tice is spelled the is. So it's it's easy to remember. And Jeff Greiner, where can people find you? Probably at my computer typing a paper because I'm in grad school. <laughs> hey, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, you can find me. Uh, you can hear my 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 dulcet tones over at thetomeshow.com, where you're hearing this now. Exactly. <laughs> so if you're listening to this, you've already found Jeff. <laughs> you've already found. Him. <laughs> <laughs> and guys, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the roundtable, reach out to me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J A M E S I N T R O C A S O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. Or you can reach out to any of these people on the panel as they have expressed you may reach out to them. And a quick shameless plug for me, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age. It's the fifth edition world that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody. Good, st- good stuff over there. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's Jeff Greiner approved, guys. Okay, everyone. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Dave, Sam, Liz, and Jeff. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or DD Classics to help support the show. Got those holidays coming up, so make sure you go to thetomeshow.com before you shop on Cyber Monday. And if you like the show, please rate The Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.